0: It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, one of our own professors, a Greek tutor to me. Professor Taylor is a Westmont alum, He teaches in our philosophy department, and I promised him a short introduction, but I want to mention one anecdote from his life. I went back to seminary at age 30. I had three children, and I'd done two years' worth of my seminary work over the previous ten I was on the 10-year plan, and I went back to Fuller Seminary for 12 months to complete the third year of my seminary training, and I'd never taken Greek, and I took every Greek course that Fuller Seminary offers in that one year. I'd never even seen a Greek letter except on a fraternity house. But I was 30 years old. I'd been out in the world and raising a family for 10 years, and I decided that anything I'd given that much time to, a year of study over and over, my very first course was uh, about a 15-unit course of nothing but Greek. And I decided if I'd put in that much time, I didn't want to lose it like most of the pastors I had known had done. So when I Left seminary and came to be associate pastor at El Montecito Presbyterian Church. I wanted to find someone to tutor me in Greek. And I believe uh, I called the religious studies department here and they said, We have a young TA who might be able to help you out. He's very good at Greek. And so I called Jim Taylor at that time, thinking maybe he was related to the famous singer. And he agreed to meet with me and with the then associate, other associate pastor at El Montecito, Steve Yamaguchi. And once a week, we brought brown bag lunches over here to the Westmont campus, cracked open our Greek New Testament, and translated, just the three of us, with Professor Taylor, who was then T.A. Taylor, I guess, helping us conjugate verbs and uh, work on our nouns and our vocabulary and our grammar. And that cemented for me uh, a love for the Greek language and a love for the Greek New Testament. And so uh, I've had a, a owed him a debt for many years. It was a very happy moment for me when he was hired here at Westmont to teach in the philosophy department. And so let's welcome Professor Jim Taylor.
1: Thanks, Bart. Good morning. Thanks for coming to chapel. I know it gets harder to go to chapel as the semester wears on. The pressure mounts, deadlines loom, papers are due, finals are right around the corner. It's the end of the semester. Not only that, it's the end of the year. You're getting stressed out. Your nerves are fraying. You're tired. Some of you probably felt like sleeping this morning. Thanks for coming. So thanks for sacrificing your time to come to chapel. Of course, some of you may be here mostly just to get chapel credit. But you're making a sacrifice too. You could have gotten off more easily by just listening to part of the tape. So thanks to you too. Thanks especially to those of you who have sacrificed the most to be here today. And you may be thinking, hey, I'm here because I, I want to be here, not because I have to. Who am I talking about? Faculty? Staff? Administrators? No. Graduating seniors. Thanks to any second semester seniors who are here today. Anybody in that uh, category? Oh, there is one. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you. She's also a student of mine, so... But perhaps some of you don't see going to chapel as a sacrifice at all. Maybe for some of you, chapel can be a welcome time away from your work. A time to enjoy the Lord together and to get a a new or renewed perspective on your college experience. I hope so. But I'm not here today to talk about chapel. Instead, I want to ask you a question. It's not a philosophical question. Well, at least not yet. It's a practical question. It's a question that will sound familiar to you, though you're used to hearing it in a different part of the year. You're also used to hearing it in the past tense. Here it is though, in the future tense. What will you do on your summer vacation? Now why am I asking you this question? Because I want to prepare you for the annual fall ritual all of us have participated in since we started school. At first, of course, it was a formal rite. Your teacher tells you to write an essay. Later on it becomes less formal. Your friends and colleagues now ask what you did on your summer vacation, or perhaps how it was if they don't want a long answer. If you're like me, you're always caught completely off guard and without an adequate reply. You cast about for the most memorable summer event, hoping it will do. For instance, two falls ago I told my questioners my family and I had gone to Disneyland for two days. Last summer it was Magic Mountain. Maybe your conversations are like mine. At first, your stories are brief, but after a series of ritual encounters of this sort, you have a canned speech which satisfies even the most inquisitive. And then, mercifully, the period of compulsory summer review comes to an end. But why wait until the last minute to get ready for such an important social practice? Why not plan ahead and prepare your speech now? Just think of how impressed your friends will be next fall when you deliver an eloquent and articulate reply to the very first person to ask you the ritual question. Well, I guess this isn't exactly how it works, though, is it? How can you decide how to report your summer experience before you've had it? Good point. I guess you can't plan your reply now, but you can plan for it. You can plan for it now by planning your summer now. How can you have a summer worth reporting unless you make plans to have a worthwhile summer. Now, I know it's kind of hard to think about summer plans when you haven't even finished a semester yet, but I suspect that if you're like me, it's easy to think about your summer vacation in general. It is at least a welcome light at the end of the present tunnel, and I'm not really asking you to think about specific details anyway. What I really want you to do now is to reflect on some general features which I think every good summer plan should have. Here's where the philosophy comes in. Oh, one more thing before we get down to business. What I really want to focus on is your free time this summer. Most of you will have a job or two, and you might also take some courses. Maybe you'll be on a short-term mission trip. We Christians talk about working, learning, and ministering for the Lord. Doesn't God care how we play too? I think so. So what I'm interested in are those things you'll do this summer in your spare time. And summer is a time, we hope, when there's a lot more of that than there usually is. Isn't that why we look forward to summer so much? It's a time to let your hair down, relax, hang loose, rest, have fun. It's a time when weather and circumstance allows for more recreation, play, entertainment, and leisure. It's when there's more freedom from responsibility and care and more freedom for amusement and diversion. I hope all of you agree that it's important to take time off to enjoy yourself. Many of us have a voice deep down inside which whispers to us that we shouldn't enjoy ourselves unless we're being productive. This voice also tells us that we're not productive unless we're working. Those of us in this category hardly ever take time off from work. Or we do take breaks, but then we feel guilty about it and don't enjoy ourselves. We call people who listen to this inner voice workaholics. This label seems to fit both those who are constantly working and those who who feel guilty when they aren't. I confess, I have a tendency to be a workaholic. Over spring break, I was in the library grading papers. One of the library custodians greeted me and then said, hey, it's spring break. You should be out having fun. After thanking him for his sympathy, I wondered whether I really did have an obligation to take some time off. Sure, it would be good for me, but do I have a duty to take a break? Well, it occurred to me that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the general idea here is that we are required to set apart a regular time for rest. I concluded that I ought to feel guilty if I don't take some time off. That evening, my wife and I went out for dinner and a show, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Of course, that's the last time I did something like that this semester, but And it is funny to be talking about leisure time now when I haven't really experienced much lately, but um, at least I have a theory, if not the practice. So it seems clear that we ought to take periodic breaks. Is it also true that there are some general features every good summer plan ought to have? How can leisure time be freedom from responsibility if we have an obligation to spend it in some ways and not in others? And who am I to tell you what to do with your time off anyway? Some people are put off by this talk of duties, responsibilities, and obligations. They think we should eliminate all oughts and shoulds from our our vocabulary. Well, this way of talking doesn't bother me, but there is another way of talking about worthwhile free time, which which some might find more to their liking. Aristotle might put it like this. If you really want to be happy, if you really want to flourish, then you'll work hard to become the kind of person who knows how best to use your free time. Aristotle knew that everybody wants to be happy. He also thought that the best way to become happy is to be all that you can be. And when it comes to leisure time, he thought this meant doing things that are really worthwhile. So don't worry. I'm not trying to spoil your fun. I don't want to be a killjoy or a scrooge. I didn't come here today to play the parent and give you a list of specific do's and don'ts. For one thing, I'm not sure what I'd say. I'm just beginning to figure this stuff out myself. More importantly, it's best if, e- if we each make our own specific decisions about how to spend our time. I think the general principles are the same for all of us, but I also think that how they're best applied is to some extent a matter of personal preference and taste. So please don't turn me off. I want to help you enjoy your leisure time more, not less. Here's something else Aristotle thought. He thought we humans are the kind of individuals who are happiest, at least in the long run, when we are good people doing good things. And a good person is, at least, a responsible person. I think Aristotle is probably right about this, but it doesn't mean we're always going to be happy in the short run about being responsible. We don't, we don't always feel like being responsible perhaps especially in our free time. But it's pretty clear, isn't it, that no part of our lives is free from moral responsibility? It's not okay to do whatever you want with your free time, even if it hurts somebody else. So we have at least what philosophers call a negative duty, which limits our leisure. We have a duty, that is, not to hurt others. So though leisure time means freedom from some responsibilities, it surely doesn't mean freedom from all of them. Do we have a positive leisure time duty as well? Do we have a duty to engage in worthwhile activities in our spare time? Well, if we follow Aristotle here, we'll say at least that if we want to be truly happy and fulfilled, we shouldn't think that we can do whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Spending all your free time alone as a couch potato, vegging out in front of the TV watching infomercials is not likely to be very enriching and fulfilling. But do we also have a duty or obligation to do something more rewarding? Well, I'm not completely sure what to think about this. But here's a reason to think we do. Don't we think that time is a precious thing and that it's wrong to waste it? If so, then we think we have a responsibility to use our free time well. But why would it be wrong to waste time if we're not hurting anyone but ourselves? Look at it this way. What we're really wasting is not so much time but the opportunity to enrich our lives by using our resources well and growing as persons. Some might say that we owe it to ourselves to make good use of our free time. Whether or not this is the case, we may very well owe it to our parents, and especially to God, not to squander whatever resources they provided us to live meaningful lives. Where would, we be, where would we be today without their care? It seems that we owe it to them at least not to waste the resources they've given us. Well, let's suppose that at least one of these ways of thinking is right. Either we ought to spend our free time well, period, or we ought to if we want to be happy. Either way, our goal should be to engage in worthwhile activities and to avoid worthless ones. But what, in general, would make our leisure time worthwhile? I think there are a number of things, but what I want to explore today is the idea that worthwhile leisure involves the responsible enjoyment of pleasures that are worth enjoying. Some Christians have thought that only pursuits involving self-sacrifice and self-denial can be worthwhile. Some Christian traditions frown on pleasure, enjoyment, and satisfaction, at least of the physical kind. You know what I'm talking about. Eat just enough to stay alive, but don't enjoy your food or at least don't enjoy it too much. If you get married, have sex only to have children, never just for pleasure. I suspect that very few of you, if any, hold such extreme views. God made us with the desire for food and sex and with the capacity to enjoy them and other sources of bodily pleasure. It's clear that there are irresponsible ways for us to satisfy these desires. Gluttony and adultery are sins. But they're sins because they are abuses of God's good gifts to us of food and sex. Don't get me wrong. Periodic fasting and sexual abstinence are important spiritual disciplines. But they're not intended to extinguish our enjoyment of food and sex. They help us, instead, not to become too attached to these physical pleasures. They help us, that is, not, they, they help us, that is learn not to have too much of a good thing. Let's put this point about enjoyment more positively. Using your leisure time well means responsibly enjoying God's good gifts, enjoying these gifts as they were meant to be enjoyed. I've just tried to show you that this is not a contradiction in terms. I hope you're convinced. Have you experienced the pleasures of responsibly enjoying your free time? This is tougher than it might seem at first we all have a tendency to be drawn to pleasures we think we shouldn't enjoy. For instance, the more we we think we shouldn't eat that thick piece of cheesecake, the more we want to eat it. We often describe such rich desserts as sinful. The advertisers reinforce the idea. And when we throw all care to the winds, we think the richer, the more sinful, the better but then our experience of eating the cheesecake is a guilty pleasure. Or, if we've become indifferent to or callous about our being responsible, eating the cheesecake becomes a pleasure irresponsibly enjoyed. In neither case do we experience genuine, responsible enjoyment. In the first case, this is because the feeling of guilt prevents pure enjoyment. In the second case, this is because we can't be responsible when we don't care about what we think we ought to do. Either way, there's no responsible enjoyment. This dilemma is the result of the forbidden fruit syndrome. This syndrome involves the enjoyment of a pleasure primarily because it's forbidden, and only secondarily because it's pleasant in itself. Isn't that why we sometimes get a kick out of breaking the rules and get irritated by those goody-goodies who don't? If you want to know how the forbidden fruit syndrome manifests itself in a given place, just ask what the rules are there. Here at Westmont, we have rules against smoking and drinking on campus. The presence of these rules makes it more appealing to smoke and or drink, at least for some people, not just because those things may be enjoyable in themselves, but also, and perhaps mostly because, there's a rule against them. I know how this works. I was a student here once myself. The existence of these rules makes it more appealing for those who are especially daring to drink and smoke on campus. Not openly, of course, but in a place like the opening under the La Paz Road stone bridge by the main campus entrance. Or even more daringly, in the D.C. parking lot at night, behind a car in the dark. The less daring may smoke and drink off campus. This isn't really against the rules but it's often done primarily in symbolic defiance of the rules. And because the fruit is forbidden, it seems to taste sweeter. The same thing happens with other campus rules, like those against members of the opposite sex in the wrong room at the wrong time with the wrong degree of door closure. Or the rule against accessing pornography on the internet. The forbidden fruit syndrome makes it hard and even sometimes impossible, to experience the pure and innocent pleasure of responsibly enjoying the good gifts of God in our free time. The main problem is with our desires. When we want to do something we think we shouldn't do, the end result of doing it is the feeling of guilt or the dulling of conscience. Anyone who has experienced these things knows that they do not make for a happy and fulfilling life. So if we want to be happy, we have to find some way to change our desires. Here's the key, with thanks to Dr. Mullen for this way of putting it. We need to learn, with God's help, to desire the pleasures of the whole garden rather than the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. We need to learn to enjoy the things God has graciously given us to enjoy in the way that God intends for us to enjoy them. There's a whole garden of delights waiting for us. Why risk indigestion? by eating the forbidden and possibly rotten fruit when you can have the guaranteed satisfaction of a stomach full of genuinely good and tasty food. So far, I have urged that we ought to spend our free time in non-hurtful and worthwhile ways. I have also suggested that worthwhile leisure time is in part time which involves the responsible enjoyment of pleasure. This seems right, but it's pretty general and relatively uncontroversial. The trouble starts when you try to be more specific about which pastimes are worthwhile and which aren't. And I did say above that worthwhile leisure involves the responsible enjoyment of pleasures that are worth enjoying. Things get especially tricky if you assume that some of the worthwhile things are better than others and then go on to evaluate specific experiences along these lines. The easy way out would be for me to stop here and leave all of this up to you, but that wouldn't be very helpful and it would make my chapel talk too short. So I guess I'll go out on a limb and risk stepping on some toes. Hey, if our provost can mix metaphors, then why can't I? I'm still exploring these things myself, so please don't get too upset if I put one of your pet pursuits in a bad light. Plato and Mill are poles apart in their political theories. In spite of their political differences, they agreed with each other that some pleasures are better than others. This idea doesn't sit well with a lot of people. For instance, the contemporary American postmodern philosopher Richard Rorty says that it's OK for people to spend their free time any, any way they please, as long as they don't hurt anybody. On this view, what makes a pleasure worth having is simply that a person wants to experience it. I think Plato and Mill are wiser here. The democratic view that all pleasures are created equal has negative practical consequences. At worst, it can lead a person to live the life of a wanton. Wantons are individuals who always do just whatever they want at any given time. If all pleasures are equal, then so are all desires. So the desires which win out in a wanton's life are just those which happen to be the strongest. Though wantons don't necessarily hurt others, they inevitably hurt themselves. They become slaves to their strongest desires. And since wantons never exercise self-control, their strongest desires are often sinful desires. Wantons are slaves to sin. Well, I doubt that anybody here is a complete wanton. It It would be tough to live a life of complete abandonment to one's strongest desires. For one thing, God gave each of us a conscience. When a person with a conscience gives in to a lustful, greedy or selfish desire, he or she feels guilty. It's hard to go around feeling guilty all the time. In the end, it leads to self-loathing. And if someone manages to stifle his or her conscience, a life of wantonness will lead to perpetual feelings of boredom and emptiness. People with consciences can also feel empty after indulging in innocent, but relatively meaningless pleasures. Just think of the channel surfing couch potato. I think all of us have experienced wantonness, but I suspect none of us has ever been a complete wanton, at least not for very long. It's hard to go on feeling miserable. I think these God-given feelings of guilt and emptiness are a key to understanding the difference between the higher and lower pleasures. We feel guilty to the extent that we indulge in pleasures we think are bad. We feel empty to the extent that we indulge in meaningless pleasures. This suggests that the higher pleasures are pleasures which are both good and meaningful. And the more good and meaningful the pleasure, the higher it is. Feelings are a God-given guide here, too. The more we experience the higher pleasures, the more we will tend to feel clean, peaceful, satisfied, and enriched. The highest pleasures can yield a deep sense of joy." Now, Plato said that the higher pleasures are the pleasures of the intellect and the lower pleasures are the pleasures of the body. I don't agree with this, but I do think there's a grain of truth in it. The reason I don't agree with it is that it implies that we would be most fulfilled if we didn't have bodies. On this view, our bodies prevent us from experiencing complete happiness. But I think being embodied is an essential aspect of some of the highest of human pleasures. Sitting with good friends in the Arlington Theater, listening to the Santa Barbara Symphony play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, sharing a gourmet meal with good friends, and then lingering around the table afterward for good conversation and laughter, watching the sunset over the ocean, while sharing a drink and conversing with a good friend at longboards These are pleasures that can't be enjoyed, or at least can't be fully enjoyed, without bodies. Mill saw the grain of truth in what Plato said. This is that The higher pleasures are pleasures which can't be experienced and fully enjoyed without a mind. And the more the mind is involved, the higher the pleasure. Let's put this together with my earlier claim that the higher pleasures are characterized by goodness and meaning. If we didn't have minds, we wouldn't be able to appreciate the joy of loving friendship or experience the enrichment of a meaningful conversation. Similar things can be said about the enjoyment of beauty and truth. The more I use my mind when I listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the more I am able to appreciate what makes it so beautiful, its intricate rhythms, sophisticated harmonies, and subtle textures. And it is obvious that without minds, we couldn't enjoy learning and increasing our knowledge by discovering truths about the world. Of course, sometimes the truth hurts. When it does, we might be tempted to think that ignorance is bliss. But there can also be great satisfaction, when puzzlement and doubt are replaced by understanding and confidence. So you can't enjoy any of the higher—excuse pla- me—you can't enjoy any of the highest pleasures without a mind, and some of the highest pleasures can't be enjoyed without a body. The ones that require both are distinctively human pleasures. Animals don't have the the mental capacity to enjoy them, and angels can't enjoy them because they don't have bodies. Though animals can eat a gourmet meal. They lack the refined memories, imaginations, concepts, and feelings that enable humans to experience a more sophisticated enjoyment of their meal. An angel without a body just doesn't have the required taste buds. Now, it's true that not all humans enjoy gourmet meals and symphonies. At least not all humans enjoy these things to the same extent. Perhaps some of you would say that you'd rather grab a burger and fries at McDonald's than eat a gourmet meal at a French restaurant, even if someone else paid for it. Or you'd say that any music would be better than classical. Doesn't this show that whether a pleasure is worth having is a completely individual matter? Don't these different preferences indicate that the worth of a pleasure is a matter which is relative to each individual's subjective tastes? I don't think so. The higher pleasures require not only a mind, but also a mind which has been cultivated refined, trained, and educated to enjoy them. You have to learn to enjoy the higher pleasures. They are an acquired taste. Well, perhaps you think this is a bad kind of elitism. Isn't it downright undemocratic and even unchristian to to suggest that some people are capable of experiencing better pleasures than other people are? I don't think so. Think about the kinds of things you enjoy doing now compared to the sorts of things you enjoyed as a child. Back then, you were completely satisfied with toys, cartoons, candy, ice cream, picture books, presents on your birthday, and an occasional trip to Disneyland, which you really believed at the time to be the happiest place on earth. Now imagine replacing whatever you enjoy doing now in your leisure time with all of these childhood pleasures. Suppose you had to live this way for a long time. Wouldn't you eventually be bored to tears? I know I would be. Wouldn't you think of your adult pleasures as more meaningful and worthwhile? I suspect you would. Doesn't it make sense that you're able to enjoy these more meaningful adult pleasures because of all the ways in which your mind and body have developed over the years? I hope you agree that it does. This suggests that the more we grow as persons, the more we are capable of enjoying higher and more meaningful pleasures. So to say that some people are more able to experience better pleasures than others, isn't elitism, it's just a fact about human nature. Now the kind of mental enrichment which has enabled you to experience increasingly meaningful pleasures over the years is a kind of mental enrichment that doesn't have to stop. But it isn't automatic. You have to work at it. There are a number of reasons for this. A big one is that we live in a society dominated by pop culture. And the pleasures provided by popular culture are, for the most part, pleasures which can be enjoyed without a lot of mental effort. If you try to enjoy higher pleasures, as well as popular ones, you'll find fewer people to share them with. Some people might even accuse you of being a snob. This can leave you feeling alienated. How many people do you know who would rather go to a poetry reading than to a movie? Probably you know more people that would rather see the show, and these would rather not see an art film. So one reason you have to work at learning to enjoy the higher pleasures is that you have to go against the tide. Another reason it's hard work is that the higher pleasures aren't always enjoyable at first. Reading a great novel like War and Peace requires more out of you than reading a popular romance novel. Reading classical literature may be downright frustrating at first, but if you stick with it, you may find it deeply rewarding. It's just hard to stick with something that isn't initially very fun. Why bother? Well, because the enrichment you eventually experience will make it worth the effort. Now I'm not saying that you should plan a summer vacation free of television, hamburgers, Nintendo, light reading, shopping, internet surfing, and popular music, and cheesecake. I plan to enjoy all of these this summer myself, perhaps especially the cheesecake. I'm just suggesting that you consider broadening yourself and expanding your horizons by being open to the possibility of learning to enjoy either theater gourmet food, chess, great literature, art museums, botanic gardens, or classical music. If you choose to cultivate an interest in just one of these sources of higher pleasure, you'll take an important step in your own personal growth, enrichment, and satisfaction. You'll be in the process of becoming a person who can enjoy, with others who are growing in similar ways, all the pleasures of God's garden. At the same time, may I suggest, you'll be in the process of becoming a person better able to enjoy the gardener himself. Well, I hope I've said enough today to convince you of the value of planning to spend your free time this summer in worthwhile ways. I also hope you agree with me that worthwhile leisure time involves the responsible enjoyment of pleasures which are worth enjoying. I have suggested that the pleasures most worth enjoying are the higher pleasures, that is, the ones that are, among other things, the most meaningful. I hope you agree with me about this too, though I know opinions are divided on this point. However, if you don't agree with me about something I've said, I invite you to talk to me about it. After all, good conversation is one of the highest pleasures of life. Actually, I hope you talk to each other too about these things. I'm really more interested in getting all of us talking to each other about important matters of disagreement than I am in getting you to agree with me. At any rate, If you do plan to spend your spare time this summer engaging in worthwhile pursuits, you'll have something to say next fall when someone asks you what you did on your summer vacation. You can say that you enjoyed a number of worthwhile and meaningful activities. I'll leave it up to you to decide what those activities will be. In closing, let me remind you what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says is the chief end or main purpose of human life. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This suggests that the most worthwhile thing we can do in life is to find pleasure in company with the Lord. So however you plan your summer vacation, make sure that you take time out to enjoy the Lord. Thank you.